All right, it's time for the kids to come on up front. All right, come on over, guys. Find a spot to sit. All right, good to see you all this morning. Come on over and find somewhere to sit. All right, now we have been preaching through the book of Acts, right? We started that a couple of weeks ago, and a couple of weeks ago we talked about what it means to be a witness. Do you remember that? When we talked about being a witness, a witness is someone who tells what they have seen and what they have heard, right? They tell of their experience. And so Jesus told the apostles in the beginning of chapter 1 that they would be his witnesses, right? They were to wait first. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit. And after that, then they would be witnesses for Christ all over the world, right? And so the apostles then, guess what they did next? They obeyed Jesus, they did what he told them to do. And so that's always a very good thing to do, isn't it? Even for us, it's a good thing to obey Jesus, to follow God's word. We should always do that. That's really important for us as well, right? So Jesus commanded and the apostles obeyed. They follow what he said. And then, guess what? What Jesus said would happen, happened. It came to be, right? The Holy Spirit came upon them in power, and they went forth to give eyewitness testimony to tell what they had seen and what they had heard. They gave testimony. They were witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection, to his death on the cross for sin and being raised again to, to life. And so they preached, and they proclaimed the message of the gospel, of who Jesus was, is, and all that he did. And as they did that, as they preached and proclaimed the gospel, God saved many people. The apostles told people the bad news about their sin, but they also told them the good news of God's plan to save them through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as they proclaimed this message, that they told people this, God saved lots and lots of people, and God continued building his church. Did you know that even you can be a witness for Jesus too? You can tell others the, the bad news about their sin and about the good news of what Jesus did and dying on the cross to forgive their sin and being raised to life again that they might have life. You can tell people that. We can be witnesses because we have God's Word. And so we can be witnesses to what we read and what we study and what we hear preached through God's Word. We can go then and share that with others. We can be witnesses. And as you proclaim this message, God will be with you in power. He'll be your power. He'll be your strength for this. And God will save some people, right? That's our encouragement in sharing the gospel and being a witness for Jesus is that God will use that and he will save some people. He'll bring them to faith in Christ as well. And so here's the question. Kids, how are you doing? Yeah? Adults, how are you doing? How are you doing in being a witness for Jesus? How are you doing in telling others about the gospel and about who Jesus is and all that he has done to save them? 
That's the question. How are you doing in being a witness for Christ? Hopefully we all together can keep growing in that more and more to be good witnesses for Jesus Christ. All right? So thanks for coming. Pastor Jeremy's going to come now and preach through Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out? We're in Acts chapter 2, as Pastor Jeff said. I think this is one of the most wonderful, powerful chapters in the Bible. I'm teaching a church history class Tuesdays at noon on YouTube. You can watch it anytime. And after the first week, I was describing what church history is. And I was explaining that I was going to be teaching from the time of Acts on. And one of those watching asked a good question. Well, I thought church history could include all of history from Genesis on. And that's right. It could. Because all who have faith in Christ, whether it was faith before Christ came and the promises of Christ or faith after Christ had came and what he did in the cross, it's the same faith and the same Christ. And so all of God's people are one. That's absolutely true. God has united Jew and Gentile in one new man in Christ. And yet here in Acts chapter 2, we see the beginnings of the church proper of how this began. It really is something. The main thing in this chapter is God did it. Everybody else is a minor character. The apostles, Peter, all of them are like, like they got little parts in the play. The big part, the, the one who does it is God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of Christ. So as you go through this, don't neglect that. It's his church. He established it. He purchased it in the blood of his son. He upholds it. And he will ultimately glorify it in the end. I am not going to read all of the chapter. I just asked Mandy during Jeff's children's sermon. Sorry. Should I read the whole chapter? She said, it's kind of long. She said, what part are you going to work on the most? And I said, well, all of it. No, I'm just kidding. So we're gonna, I'm going to start in verse 22, read to verse 24, skip ahead to verse 33, and then read to the end. So verse 22, Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved." Isn't that wonderful? Hmm. Let's pray. Father, make this so here. May we be, never be ashamed of your gospel. May we never be ashamed to proclaim that we belong to crucified and risen and reigning Lord. And may we have the faith to bear the fruit that these did. That we be devoted to the things they were devoted to and we would have the kind of Love for each other, gathering together with glad, generous hearts. May you give us favor and add to our number those being saved. But now give us faith to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what's Acts 2 about? What are you most curious about in Acts 2? Let me ask it that way. What's the most often argued truth in Acts 2? What, what would you like to argue about here? Come on, what is it? Church membership, that's not what I was thinking about. We could do that, though. Anybody? Come on. Tongues. Tongues. What are these tongues? Should it be normal in the church? Is it required that if you receive Christ and receive the Holy Spirit that you have to be able to speak in tongues? What a dumb thing to argue about and focus on in this passage. What I'd like to say to those of you who think that this should be normative in the church is, well, the next time you're an apostle and that you're waiting in Jerusalem in an upper room and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and fires on your head, then go ahead and speak in tongues. <laughs> no, this, what is this about? This is about God's power in starting a new humanity, the church. This is Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. This is God through little nobody people preaching boldly in the power of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, a very simple message that 3,000 people repent of their sins and are added to God's eternal kingdom. And we want to argue about tongues or church membership or whatever. So the day of Pentecost, you see at the beginning of chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrived. Pentecost literally means 50th day, Penta, 57 weeks after the Passover. It was their harvest feast. It was Oktoberfest. 
It was a time when Jews, we read, from every nation under earth were gathered together in Jerusalem. In verse 9 and 10, it lists all, or 9, 10, 11, it lists all the nations. So if you remember, the Jews at this time weren't mainly dwelling in Jerusalem or in Judea. They were mainly scattered throughout the Roman, Greek-speaking world and cities and towns all over the place. And they all journeyed back to Jerusalem to have a party. And while they were there, the apostles were being obedient to the Lord because he said, come to Jerusalem, wait for the gift of the Spirit. There they are in Jerusalem. We saw last week that they were there together in one accord, praying. And when they were there together, all in one place, the Holy Spirit came upon, sounded like a mighty rushing wind. I don't know what that is. I don't think it's a gentle northerly breeze. This is probably like, Tornado, hurricane, screaming sound, fire appeared on their heads. (laughs) This is wild, isn't it? You've heard this too many times for this to strike you like it should. This is weird. And then they all began to speak in languages that a moment before they didn't have the ability to speak in. (laughs) This is crazy. So these aren't like kind of heavenly languages. These are human languages that those who were from those, all those different parts of the world, we have them listed, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and so on. These different languages, suddenly these Galilean hicks who could only speak English, but only like youpers, not very well, can suddenly speak French and... Spanish and Mandarin and every other language. This is a miracle. And what are they speaking? The gospel. So they're proclaiming to all of those who gather, because this is weird. They're attracted to the noise and to these tongues and the word spreading and the crowds gathering. At first, they think they're drunk, but it's only 9 a.m. Even those who gather for Oktoberfest celebrations don't get started quite that early. And instead, Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. He first quotes from Joel. This was told beforehand that after Christ ascended, the Holy Spirit would be poured out and they would prophesy, they would speak in languages unknown beforehand. And so this is being fulfilled right now. They're not drunk. God's word is coming true right in front of you. The spirit has been poured out. And so look at that prophecy in Joel, verses 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. So Peter is preaching the Bible. He's pointing out what's happening in front of them by Scripture So what Joel said there is being fulfilled there. Now, at the heart of Peter's sermon, though, isn't fulfilled prophecy. It's Christ. He wants to help them see this isn't drunkenness. This is drunkenness in the Spirit, not drunkenness with wine. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And then he goes right to Christ. Jesus, attested by mighty works. Jesus, delivered up by God's will, but that you crucified 
Jesus raised from the dead, as foretold in the scriptures, and as all of us have witnessed, Jesus ascended. So it's all about Jesus. But Peter's sermon isn't just like information. He goes right after him. You heard me emphasize it when I was reading it, doesn't it? He goes right after him. Verse 23. This Jesus, who's, it was God's plan to deliver up, but you crucified. You delivered him over. You. This is the second personal pronoun that preachers should never, ever, ever use. Don't ever say you in the pulpit. You're actually trained that. Don't say you. Say we. Why? Because then the preacher can kind of still remain guarded. Because how dare the preacher sound like he's not included in you? How dare the preacher sound like as if he's standing in the place of God addressing his people? He needs to say we. We. Because we're together. Because I'm one of you. I'm not God's messenger sent to proclaim his word to you and so separate from you in a sense. Look at Peter. You. You. Says it again. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain this God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So at the center of Peter's sermon is Christ crucified and risen, but at the point of that sword is you. Contributed, being part of a nation that is guilty of the most heinous sin that has ever been committed in the face of the earth. You crucified the Son of God. And then we see their response. What shall we do? Wouldn't it be nice if your kids did that? Honey, you were lying. I know, Mom. What should I do? Wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Or if you're at work and you went to somebody that you had responsibility for and said, hey, you're just not pulling your weight around here. You're getting here 10 minutes late. You're taking a little long. I, I know. I'm sorry, boss. What should I do? Can you help me? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? If we really felt the weight of our sin like they did? They do. Peter says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 3,000 received his word. What humility, what faith. They were baptized. And then we have this delightful description of the work of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives, of the fruit that their repentance and faith bore in the coming weeks. They gathered, they had these devotions, they, it was delightful. So let's start there at the end. In verses 42 to 47, you have what are often called the marks of a healthy church. You have these devotions in verse 42. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They gather regularly to hear the preaching and teaching of God's word. They're devoted to the fellowship. They just love being together with other Christians. They love it. We see later on in the text in verse 46 that they attended the temple day by day and they gathered in each other's homes. They came Sunday morning for worship and they went on Sunday afternoon or Tuesday or Thursday to neighborhood small groups. (laughs) 
And then they were devoted to the breaking of bread. That's probably the Lord's Supper. And to the prayers. But the devotion, they were devoted. Their hearts were in it. There, there's awe. Verse 44, they're together. They, verse 45, are taking care of each other in really intimate and costly ways. And then again, verse 46, they're always together. They receive their food. They're eating together glad and generous hearts and such praise to God, favor with the people, and many continuing to come to the Lord. It's wonderful. I wanted to draw that out because I, I hope this doesn't sound proud, but it's really enjoyable to be part of Pine Grove right now. We have a long ways to go. The laurels aren't yet on our head. The metal hasn't yet been hung around our neck. But it is really enjoyable to be a part of our church that has something of this aroma. And so good work. Praise God. All glory to God. You know you're just a bunch of schmucks. But really, isn't it fun to be a part of a healthy church that does enjoy each other, praises God? And, and so keep it up. And I think we might, in that way, consider that the fruit that we see here in Acts 2, if you remember back to last week, is the fruit of the devotion to prayer in Acts 1. And so please continue to pray, brothers and sisters, for the church, for our church, for the other churches around here. Don't take this for granted. Pray, 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 pray that these realities in verses 2 to 42, 47 would be a reality in your life and in our lives. So how did Christ build his church here in Acts 2? The church is built. The church is established. The church is founded. How? What are the means? Words. Words. Holy Spirit powered words. That shouldn't surprise us, though it is surprising. Why shouldn't it surprise us? How has God always created? Words. And God said, let there be light. And here, God is speaking again through the preaching of an apostle in the power of the Holy Spirit. And words bring something new into existence that wasn't there. God is creating here. He's creating his people, his beloved church, his saints, his son's bride. Words. And the emphasis of these words isn't on the preacher, isn't on Peter, but on God's power. That's why there's so much focus on how miraculous and unique this chapter is. There's some detail here of the Holy Spirit coming with a mighty rushing wind. Wind is just another word for spirit. There's a word play there. The tongues, their ability to speak in foreign languages. It's just constantly saying, I am building my church. The power is mine. 
even Peter's sermon are all of God's words. Quotes from Joel, quotes from Psalm chapter 16, Psalm 110, mentions of other scriptures. And so the main point is, God wants to make plain that the establishing of his church is not a work of man. It's a work of God. Because why? The enemy and our flesh constantly want us to question whether or not what we're reading here is just something man created. Don't you have that struggle? This is what the devil, demons love to do. This is what your flesh loves to to wrestle with. We love to wrestle. We love to wrestle with doubting. This could really be God. This isn't man. This isn't a man's gospel. This isn't a man's power. This isn't just some guy who went up on a mountain and received a digital download from an angel. This happened in public with tens of thousands of eyewitnesses. This wasn't done in a discreet hidden place with a super select group of people who came up with this latest, greatest. This happened in public. So that our hope might always be in God. The church is his. He began it. The foundation is his eternal word. The power is his. Now, let me apply that just real briefly to what we've been seeing going on in our country in the last couple of years, with COVID especially. When COVID hit, initially, the general quarantine came, and it affected churches. We were quarantined even from gathering as a church. And so the civil sphere, the governing authority, demanded the church not to meet. Did, he, uh, did they have a right to do so? Yeah. Initially, there are times, of course, when the civil authorities have a right to generally tell everybody, stay at home, times of great plague or maybe threat. But then the civil government began to define what is and what is not essential. How many of you were deemed, is it inessential or unessential? Yeah, I think everybody said in and on. Non-essential? Non? We'll do that. The church was put in the category of non-essential. Does the government have the authority given to it by God to tell the church who she is? Absolutely not. Why? Because God started us. Because God alone has the authority to define us. And so God here, in establishing the church as he has by his power, by his word, according to his will, is telling the civil sphere, which he also created, to be really careful. To not ever pretend to have any authority within His church. So the governing authority, though they may have a right from time to time to tell us we can't meet in times of legitimate real threat, does not 
at all have the right to single out the church for that. Does not have any right to define for who we are as unessential or essential. We are God's people. How dare they ever say we're unessential? Nor to ever tell us what to preach or whether or not we can sing or the numbers we can gather, any of that. And yet, the church should submit to the state. But we'll see that throughout Acts. I just wanted to bring that up right now. So the power is God's in establishing the church. And he establishes it by the preaching of his word. And at the center of the preaching of this word is the preaching of Christ. We see that the Father planned it. Verse 23, it was by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We see that the Son accomplished it. It was the Son who came. It was the Son who lived a holy life. It was the Son who died. It was the Son who rose. And so God planned it. The Son accomplished it. And we see the Holy Spirit doing it, making it a reality. And so the triune God is the one who built us. God saves And so this is a miracle we're seeing here. 3,000 sinners saved. 3,000 people who the moment before were dead in their sins and trespasses, enslaved to the power of the world, now made alive together with Christ. A moment before they were blinded by the God of this world from seeing the glory of God in Christ. Then God took the scales off and they saw and beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The moment before they were a part of the domain of darkness, and then a moment later they were transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a miracle we see here. It's the greatest miracle. The miracle isn't the speaking in tongues. The miracle isn't the mighty rushing wind. The miracle isn't the fire on the heads. The miracle is getting dead sinners alive. And that's what God did here. And that's what God continues to do through the preaching of his word. This is the normal, regular means that God makes you live by you attending faithfully to the preaching of his word. And notice something. Please notice it. This isn't a one and done thing, is it? They don't hear the preaching once and then go on. They hear the preaching once, and then in verse 42, they devote themselves to continue to hear the preaching of God's word. Because they're newborn babies in Christ. And what do newborn babies need? Food. Right, moms? How much sleep did you get when your newborn baby needed nursing? They always want food. And sometimes we lie to them and tell them that they're getting food by putting a knuck in their mouth just to pacify them for a little bit. They needed food. Where are they going to get food? The same way that they got life. This reminds me of the time when Jesus was preaching and he said some really hard things. He told the Jews that unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part in me. Remember that? And what happened to the crowd? What happened to all those who were there? They left him. They were ashamed of him. They were so embarrassed by what he said. They left. And Jesus turned to the apostles and said, you going to go too? What did Peter say? To whom would we go? You alone have the words of life. 
And so this is what Christians do. God's word saves. God, God's word breaks hard hearts. God's word humbles your pride. God's word pricks your conscience. Peter wasn't preaching an informational lecture. He was attacking them. He was going after them. He was assaulting them. He was taking a hammer and thumping their consciences. You crucified him. We sung it, the first song. Your word is like a fire, like a hammer, like a sword. So, brothers and sisters, this kind of preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit to the conscience should lead to these kind of questions. What shall we do? This is the constant effect that God's word should have in your lives. It should offend you. It should tweak your nose. It should make your cheeks red. Where you see, I need Christ. I need Christ. Notice then what happens. They hear this, 3,000 are added. And what happens to the lives of these people? What I want to get at is, we in America, especially in the last 50, 60, 70 years, more than that even, are prone to read Acts 2 as if it's a Billy Graham crusade. Prone to read Acts 2 as if it's a youth conference. Prone to read Acts 2 if it's like a camp fire where you hear the gospel preached and you are told to bow your heads and pray a prayer or sign a card. And then you just go on living however you want to live. Because that's what happens. Is that what happened to these people? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now one answer you could give is, it is the news, the good news that Jesus died and rose. You believe that's the gospel, right? Yes. But another answer is, what is the gospel? It's a life. It's a new life to live. It's repentance. It's turning from one thing to an entirely new thing. It's allegiance that you once had to the world and to yourself, no longer now to Christ and to his church. The gospel is a life. Repent. Turn around. Be baptized. Enter into the sacrament that shows I am dead. I am new. I'm following Jesus. Do you know how shameful it would have been to be baptized in the name of Jesus at that moment? This is the same Jesus in the capital city that they had just hung naked on a cross and put in a tomb. And now they're told, repent, but go down to the river in front of everybody and proclaim, I'm with him. Let me give you something similar. God help me here. 
It'd be like you being baptized in the name of Trump in D.C., in the Potomac, in front of all of the MSNBC, CNN cameras. Why, did, why, did, why do so many hate Trump? Or why do you, when you say, I don't approve of Trump's tweeting, and I don't approve of some of the things that you said, but I voted for him. Why do you say it like that? Because you're ashamed of him. Because you're embarrassed by him. Right? Well, partly because he is embarrassing and shameful. But you, you see what I'm getting at here. For them to do this was for them to forsake all things. For them to wave their hands and go, I'm with the person you most hate. I am with the person that you think is the most despicable, wicked, embarrassing person you could ever. I'm with him. Christ was crucified. He said awful things to people in prominent positions. He associated with dirty people. The Jews hated him. The Romans crucified. I'm with him. And they prove it with their lives. Let me put it this way. Any kind of evangelism that does not lead people to live something similar to verses 42 to 47 isn't evangelism. Can we get that straight? Any kind of the preaching of the gospel, any kind of preaching of the gospel where people confess Christ but it doesn't lead to some kind of life Imaging in some way, verses 42 to 47, was not evangelism. You are not saved by praying a prayer. You are not saved by signing a card. You are not saved with all heads bowed and hands raised. You are saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that leads to a new life. It must lead to a new life. Jesus is Lord. That's what these people are saying. They were coming to the end of their lives. They saw that there was no hope apart from Christ. That their former life was leading them to hell. And they needed a new life. And it was only found in Christ. And because of that, they were willing to live a new life. And what kind of life was it? It wasn't remarkable, brothers and sisters. They all didn't sell everything and go to India and become missionaries. What did they do? They got together in their homes and ate chicken. Some people sold some things they didn't need anymore and gave it to people who needed some stuff. They got together on the Sabbath to hear preaching. They tried to have real glad, generous hearts and not be such cranks. They just lived life. There's nothing stupendous here, is there, in verses 42 to 47? Is there anything just like really amazing? But this is the life they gave themselves to. So young people, you must learn to live this life. You must take this life for yourself. This should be your life. 
If Christ is your life, then that's describing your life. Brothers and sisters, are you giving yourselves to God's people like this? Now, this is just ordinary, okay? But the temptation in America is just to fill your life up with so many things that take you away from this life. And so we just must be done with being Christians in name only. Jesus said it. You cannot follow me unless you're willing to die, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. And this is what he meant. This is what he was calling us to, verses 42 to 47, that. So, take that home with you. Live it. Coming to Christ isn't simply another way to cover over your internal discombobulation and just go on living however you want. That's what we're seeing here. And it is a gift of God, brothers and sisters. This new life, it is so good and pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Even though these words are This life is described rather ordinary. We know that in our flesh and fighting with the devil in this world, it is a battle of life and death. And so, God, please give us faith to love you and to love your people. Give us faith to contribute as far as it is with us to this kind of a reality. Give us faith to love your people and give ourselves to your word because we love you. God, give those who are here who do not yet believe in Christ the humility to humble themselves, to despair of their sin before you and repent and turn to Christ and soon be baptized. It's your miracle, oh God. Please work it here and in the other faithful churches in our area. God, we praise you for this and ask that you would continue to build us into your most holy people that we would take serious this call to live as your people, salt and light here, and that you would give us favor and add to our number daily those being saved. Praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this, and, and, and it's what we talk about not infrequently. Devotion implies heart. That it's not just like kind of being there but not being there. And so, your devotion matters. Your heart matters. So husbands, be devoted to your wives. Wives, be devoted to your husbands. Children, give your hearts to your fathers, to your mothers. And then, brothers and sisters, give your hearts to each other. Be devoted to each other. And so what's one practical way you can do that in the coming week? That's the charge. May God grant you to live lives of repentance knowing that he forgives all sins in the, names of, in the name of Christ. May God grant you more of his spirit that you might walk increasingly in the joy of fellowship with God and each other. May God give you a heart devoted to his word, to the fellowship of the church, to the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. May you see that God has supplied you with all things that you need for life and godliness and that those supplies 
are to be supplies that you use for the good of others. May you love attending worship together. May you love gathering each other's homes with glad and generous hearts, praising God. May God give you and us favor with all the people in our area, and may he add to our number day by day those being saved. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.